You guys ever had one of those days that's uh, looming over you? One of those big important days, whether it's positive or negative, whether you're really looking forward to it or really dreading it, one of those big significant days that just sort of hangs there over you. And uh, it could be uh, a first date that you're nervously excited for. Maybe it's a hard conversation that you know you have to have with a friend, but it, you don't want to, but it's necessary. Maybe it's a, an exam that's coming up, or a first day of college. Maybe it's the wedding day you've been longing for, or the birth of a child. Maybe it's a doctor's appointment that's been keeping you up at night. We've all had those big, looming days in this life from time to time, those days that are constantly on your mind, those days that you're constantly anticipating, those days where it feels like you're carrying a weight around because that day is coming. One of those big looming days in my life was when I first graduated from college and I went on one of the first real job interviews that I had ever had. And like many graduates, I left college having no idea what to do with my life. So I knew I didn't want to be unemployed. So I started applying around to a bunch of different jobs. And I got an interview as an admissions representative at a law school. And it seemed like a decent job. And like I said, I didn't want to not work. So I went and I felt all this pressure leading up to this interview. And I was really, really nervous. And for that week of my life, I remember laying in bed just thinking, okay, what kind of questions are they going to ask? How am I going to answer them? What am I going to wear? What's this going to look like? And for a week leading up to it, I had this mental to-do list tallying in my mind. Uh, I better check my references and make sure they know a call might be coming. I've got to go get a haircut and maybe a new shirt and do all sorts of research to prepare for this. That day was just looming there. Regardless of where I was or what I was doing, It was always on my mind. It was constantly there, just dominating my thoughts and my energy. And as easy as it is for us to get worked up over these big looming days in life, there is an infinitely more important day looming over us. In today's passage, Jesus talks about the important day looming over us all. Jesus, Jesus teaches about the day of His second coming, And how we can appropriately anticipate that day now. So turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Uh, So as a church, we've been moving our way through Luke's gospel. And what we do here often is we just work through books of the Bible. Because it gets us preaching things that maybe aren't the burning desire of my heart. And uh, that's where we're at today. So we land in Luke 21. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles in in the aisles here. And we've got some pens in the baskets If you don't have a Bible, take one of these home with you. We'd love for you to have that. And uh, we land in Luke 21, starting in verse 25. This is the Word of God. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
So in the midst of all these confusing images and references, the main takeaway communicated here is that the day of Jesus' return is coming. The day of Jesus' return is coming. But let's put that idea into context. So the events of what takes place in this chapter happen on the Tuesday of Holy Week. Uh, And to give you a little bit more perspective, that Thursday Jesus is going to huddle around a table with his disciples and observe the Last Supper. That Friday he's going to be arrested and crucified. That Sunday he's going to raise from the dead. So we're in the last week of Jesus' earthly life. He is just a few days from dying on a cross. Also, within the chapter, Luke 21, verse 5, all the way to the end, verse 38, in many ways is one big unit about the end. And uh, last week we covered through verse 24, where Jesus teaches about the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem and different events surrounding those things. But today our text continues that discourse. And Jesus now turns his attention to that big, important day looming over us all, the day when Jesus returns. And once again, Jesus is quick to discuss these signs surrounding this major event. According to Jesus, there are going to be discernible signs, distinguishable signs that will take place before he returns. Look at verse 25. And there will be signs. In sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. So the first question I think that hits us as we read the passage is what is going on with these references to the sun, the moon, the stars, the nations, the waves, the heavens? What is going on there? Well, these are apocalyptic images. Creation-altering things are going to happen at the end. And this is like the language that we see being used In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Those verses say this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. And then verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. And the sun will be dark at its rising. And the moon will not shed its light. Here Isaiah is looking forward to this day of the Lord. This day when the Lord, the the Messiah, will come back and execute judgment for his people's sins. And the beauty of Isaiah's prophecy is that it's layered. It's not only completely relevant and meaningful for his contemporary audience, but also into the end. And Jesus applies these end-time judgment-type images to the historical moments before he returns. Verse 26 also tells us that leading up to Jesus' return, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Which means realities in the skies are going to change. The skies, the heavens, the heavenly bodies like the sun, the moon, the stars as we have already discussed are going to be shaken. And that word shaken is really interesting. It means exactly what you think it means. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus uses that word to Uh, describe a reed that is shaken by the wind. In uh, Acts chapter 16, God causes this major earthquake to hit a prison that is housing Paul and Silas. And verses 25 and 26 say this, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
So this word shaken is talking about something being moved, something being set in motion or disrupted. And like the wind shakes a reed or an earthquake shakes the foundations of a building, we are told that the very heavens are going to be shaken when Jesus returns. And this same phenomenon is not just limited to the cosmic realm with the sun, the moon, the stars, and the heavens, but also here on earth in the created world. We see seas are going to rage in such a way that just causes this confusion, leaves the nations in distress and perplexity. Verse 25 says, And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. That word distress is talking about torment and anguish. The Apostle Paul uses that word in 2 Corinthians. When he references the first letter, he wrote to this messed up, sinful church, and he says, guys, this letter that was hard for you to read, I wrote it in anguish and distress and with a broken heart and with much tears. This word perplexity is talking about uncertainty and doubt. It's like when something happens and you're just left baffled. I have no idea how to respond to what I just saw. What, what do I do with this? So the nations are going to be loaded with this type of deep, concerning distress, this type of concerning perplexity, because these signs are taking place. And there is this massive debate about whether or not we interpret all this literally or figuratively. And though we don't know what the details surrounding what the stars and the sun and the moon being darkened are going to be like, though we can't really understand what stars falling from heaven is going to be like, and that gets interpreted a million different ways, though we don't know what the heavens being shaken, when all these things are fully realized, though we can't really understand what that's going to look like, the point is that God is going to cause even the creative universe to bow before the coming of Jesus Christ. And what's important is that the things are, these things are going to happen in the creative universe that, in that time before Jesus arrives that are weird and unique and altogether unnatural because the heavens and the earth which God created are going to yield to the coming of our King. So there will be signs. Which brings up this big important question. And if you remember throughout our study of Luke, didn't Jesus just tell us back in Luke 17 not to be overly concerned with signs? So why are there signs? What are these things all about when he just told us, don't go looking for signs? Well, maybe Jesus keeps these references here in our text vague uh, for the purpose that we wouldn't go looking for signs and focus on them Uh, when we shouldn't be. After all, Jesus' whole point in Luke 17 is that the kingdom has been ushered in as Jesus comes the first time. As He takes on flesh, the kingdom has been ushered in. And that His second coming is going to be so obvious. It's going to be so observable. Remember the illustration He uses of that? It's going to be like lightning flashing in the sky. You don't miss lightning flashing in the sky. You don't miss... The heaters making these insane noises. You can't miss that. In a very similar way, when these signs appear, you will not miss them. So we don't need to walk around living with this unhealthy obsession of looking for signs. But what is the point of these cosmic, these earthly signs? 
Well, while John, or Luke 17 tells us that Christ's second coming is going to be so observable that we will not miss it, so we don't need to look for signs, Jesus' parable in verses 29-33 to 33 shows us that the presence of these signs will very simply make known that Christ is coming soon. That He is near. So when these signs appear, we will not miss them. So on this end of it, we don't need to go looking for signs. But when they come, it's going to let us know, okay, Jesus is coming soon. So look at that parable with me. Verse verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So as Jesus has done so many times, and we've seen it all throughout our study of Luke, he takes these hard-to-understand truths, these hard-to-wrap-your-mind-around realities, and he talks about them through a story. And in this one, he uses this image of a fig tree. He references all trees, but the main one here is a fig tree. And we know that fig trees were common all around Palestine. And uh, fig trees uh, bore fruit seasonally, which means in the winter months, they, their, their branches are bare. There are no leaves. And when leaves begin to sprout, you know, okay, summer's coming. When you see those leaves, you know you're not just about to have, eat a handful of sweet figs, but that it's almost summertime. And it's this picture of the day when Jesus will return and God's kingdom is going to be consummated. These signs of things happening in the sun, the moon, the stars, the nations, the heavens, the seas are like fig leaves that are going to show us that Christ's return is coming soon. And because these signs are just going to be pointers, the call of the text is not to obsess over the signs themselves, but to focus on the one to whom they point. So to who or to what are these signs pointing? What is their presence signaling? And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding on what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. All these signs are meant to point us to Jesus. 27 is the focus. Jesus will return. And even in this one short verse, verse 27, it's it's described in such a way that leaves us with a sharper picture of what that day is going to look like. And yes, we learn that when the end comes, God has designed His creation to respond. But on that day, the big event is not going to be the sun or the moon or the stars or the heavens or the created world, but Jesus. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And to understand this depiction, this description, we've got to take a, at least a little bit of a look at Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 7 is this apocalyptic vision uh, that has taken Daniel into God's heavenly throne room where he has been given a, a, a picture of the end. And verses 13 and 14 say this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
with the with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed daniel sees the son of man this kingly messiah Come before the Ancient of Days, the Almighty God. He comes on the clouds of heaven where the, the Ancient of Days, the Almighty God, presents Him with absolute and eternal rule and reign and dominion and glory and authority in this everlasting and perishable kingdom. It's an amazing scene. And it's the same language used by Jesus in our text. Son of man, clouds, power, glory. Jesus is talking about Daniel 7. Jesus is saying Daniel's prophecy is going to be fulfilled on that day. Creation is going to yield to the coming of the Son of Man, this kingly Messiah, who will come on the clouds with great power and glory and authority. And Jesus, as we know as readers, as the whole Bible has pointed us to, Jesus is this Daniel 7 Son of Man. And so the whole biblical story has been about Jesus. All of creation has been longing for Him to return and restore the things that our sin has broken. And while Jesus' first coming as a baby in a manger was cloaked in, 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 in modesty and humility and meekness and lowliness, His second coming is going to unveil His unparalleled awesomeness. You see, days before His arrest, knowing He is about to die on the cross, Jesus makes it a point to say, but I'm not going to die for good. I will rise, I will live, and I will return. And when I do, I'm coming on the clouds. And you're going to see My full glory. And you're going to see My full power. And you're going to see My full authority. And nothing, nothing, nothing can match the weight of that day. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus says, I am the Messiah of Daniel 7. I am the focal point of Isaiah's day of the Lord. You've been waiting for me. All of history has been building up to this point. I will execute judgment on that day. I will make all things right on that day. The Son of Man is coming. I will return. And the certainty of that day ought to change everything for us. The fact, the truth, the reality that 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 day is surely coming ought to drive us to our knees in prayer and repentance and confession. God, forgive me. Who am I to stand before You? Forgive my sins. Help me, God, in this life. The fact that that day is surely coming ought to drive us to our Bibles just wanting with every ounce of us to just know Him more intimately and know Him more deeper and spend time with Him. The fact that that day is coming ought to drive us to our streets and to our neighborhoods where we have a privilege and an opportunity to serve this great God every single day. But truthfully, we get so bogged down with daily minutia that all of our joy and all of our excitement and all of our energy gets sucked up and used up as we anticipate these conversations and job interviews and exams and medical appointments. And don't get me wrong, those are important things. It is completely appropriate and good and normal to think about those things. But not to the point 
where we cruise through life barely mindful that our King is coming. Barely mindful that there is a far weightier and far more meaningful day looming. And the text has even more to say about that day. We know that once these uh, signs appear that the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come soon thereafter. That's the whole point of the parable we just read. We also see it in verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, this is hands down the most challenging verse in a very, 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 very difficult chapter. And uh, you remember what I said, we move through books of the Bible because it causes us to look at things you probably wouldn't just naturally pick. Well, this is one of those passages. By the grace of God, this is not the one I would have stood before you and preached today. But he knows this is what we need. It's a difficult verse, a difficult chapter. And uh, throughout the chapter, Jesus has been zooming in and out on different historical time periods and events, right? So he's mentioned the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem and the very end when he's going to return. And because of that, figuring out what generation he's talking about here is so tough. Commentators and Bible scholars have come up with a million different interpretations. Almost no one agrees. Some people think that once these signs come, that means that Jesus is going to come within that generation. Some people are most absolutely certain that he's somehow talking about the generation of Jesus' contemporaries, and there are interpretations spanning the whole gamut. I mean, they're all over the place. And what I want to put before you this morning is that figuring out this verse is not core to the Christian faith. We really can't be too rigid with any interpretation here. We can't be too dogmatic here. But we can know that once these signs come, Jesus will arrive soon thereafter. Jesus also makes it a point to say, these things I've been talking about, they're definitely going to happen. This isn't like a maybe or uh, throw it out there, let's see what happens. No, it's for sure. It is certain. Look at verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The ground we stand on is more likely to cease to be than for Jesus' teaching here to stop being true. The trees outside, the stars in the sky, the planets in the heaven are more likely to stop existing than for this teaching of Jesus to not be true. According to Jesus, these signs in His coming will surely, surely happen. So the day of Jesus' return is coming. That day is looming. The question is, as that day looms, how are we going to anticipate it? And as we continue on in uh, the text, we see that Jesus makes it clear that He calls us to live in light of that day. Jesus calls us to live in light of that day. And in doing so, He answers a couple of questions. He, he answers this question, what is, what, how are people going to respond on that day? But then he also answers the question, but how do we anticipate that day coming now? So how will people respond on that day? Well, the first thing that kind of jumps off the page, people are going to freak out, right? Look at verse 26. This is after the signs appear. People fainting with fear and with foreboding on what is coming on the world for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. When these end time signs occur and Jesus comes on the clouds in glory, people are going to be overwhelmed, overcome with fear. 
these signs in creation are going to take place. It's going to almost seem like all like creation is falling apart, which makes sense why fear would be a natural response. But there's a far more pressing reason why people will experience fear and foreboding on that day. Because when these things happen, it's going to signal the end. And when human history in this fallen world ends, Jesus is coming and He is going to come and judge us all. And that's scary. But the Gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And that's a major problem. We're all in big trouble, but it's the good news. The Gospel is the good news. Because while God is perfectly just and He cannot allow our sin to go unpunished, our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, looked down on His people with great compassion and with grace He took on human flesh and He lived this perfect life that none of us could have ever lived, but was necessary if an unholy people is going to live in the midst of an unholy God for all of eternity and He lived it for us. And even more so, He then hung on a cross and took the penalty for our sins that only we deserved. Jesus didn't deserve it. And all of the wrath of God that was stored up because of our sins was poured out on Jesus on the cross. So that people like you and I, sinful people who are far from God, who are naturally God's enemies, can look at the cross and look at Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me. Repent. I'm sorry for my sins. I know I've sinned against you first and foremost. My offense is chiefly against you. Forgive me, God. And He forgives you. You confess Christ as Lord and you're forgiven. But even more so, the Gospel tells us that He adopts you into His family as a child, as someone who's beloved to Him, and He welcomes you into His presence for all of eternity. But not all people are going to trust Jesus. We know that. And for people who don't know Jesus, who don't repent, who don't confess, who aren't expecting His return, who aren't prepared on that day, that day is going to be terrifying. But not everyone is caused to fear because the text also tells us that Christians can straighten up and raise their heads on that day. Look at verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The Christian response is so very different. The Christian sees these signs. The Christian sees the Lord coming and is filled with peace and hope in confidence, we see these signs. We don't hang our heads in shame. We don't run and hide the way Adam and Eve did in the garden after they sinned. We don't cower. We straighten up and we raise our heads. What does this posture communicate? We're ready. We're ready. Why? Because our redemption is near. And make no mistake, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, redemption is yours already. Here and now, in full, it is true, it is yours. You've been redeemed once and, all, once and for all by Jesus Christ. But your hope is going to be fully realized on that day. This is the day when we are rescued from the sin and the heartache and the temptations and the trial and, and the suffering and the tears of this broken world. This is the day that we long for, that we pray for, that we expect. This is the day that we hope for. As a church family, we get together every month, once a month. We're doing it next week. And we observe the Lord's Supper. 
And part of that is we're communicating to the world that we are expecting, we are proclaiming that this day is coming. This is the day of our salvation. Those who reject Jesus as Savior will receive this just condemnation, but it does not have to be so. Maybe God is even doing a work in your heart this morning as you hear the Word. If so, you can repent and confess and redemption is yours. You can repent and confess. You can join this throng of God's people who will be filled with joy on that day. You can repent and you can confess and you will be saved. And whether you stand before Jesus on that day and you are cowering in fear or you are brimming in joy hinges upon how you respond to Jesus in this life. So now is the time. Turn to Jesus in faith. Let the end change your now. So Jesus has told us He's definitely returning. He's told us how people are going to respond on that day. And now He turns His attention and lets us know how we can uh, appropriately anticipate that day now. So knowing that day is coming, what do we do here now? How does that change our lives? First, we're told to watch ourselves. Look at verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch yourself. And this watchfulness in the verse is tied to our hearts, isn't it? It says, but watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down. Because our temptation as people living in this physical world is to have hearts that are weighed down by the cares of this world. And I know in a room this size, that's just the case for some of you this morning. Some of you are so taken with the things that this world offers. Some of you are so in love with making money or so infatuated with advancing your career or your education or so so determined and so interested in living for yourself and making your own name famous, as the text said, maybe even so driven to get drunk and party and socialize to the point where your heart is weighed down by all of that this morning. And you're unprepared to stand before Jesus on that day. And all of a sudden, that day is going to come, and it's going to come quickly, and you're going to find yourself caught like a mouse in a trap, unprepared to stand before Jesus on that day. And knowing that we're all prone to live these selfish, short-sighted lives, what does Jesus say? He says, watch yourself. Which means we think seriously about that day. Which means we take it seriously that we're not cavalier with it. That we keep a watch over our hearts. The heart that's weighed down by the cares of the world is the heart that is calloused towards God. So take stock of what is in your heart. Ask God to show you what's deep down in there in the depths and the dark corners. Lord, bring it to light. Pray this prayer that David was so quick to pray. Psalm 139.23 Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Ask God to search it out, to shine a spotlight on your heart, to expose the things that are dishonoring to Him for the purpose of reshaping your heart to look more like Jesus' heart. And then we keep a close watch over our hearts, making sure they don't then become burdened, weighed down by the cares of this life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This means guard what your heart encounters. 
that you don't put influences into your heart, before your eyes, into your ears, into your spirit that are going to weigh you down and distract you from Jesus, but that you immerse yourself in things that are going to help you grow in Christ and grow in your faith and deepen and encourage you to keep your eyes on eternity. The day when Christ is coming is surely going to come, so we keep watch over ourselves. We let that day change this day. We let the end change our now. Jesus also exhorts us to stay awake and to pray. Look at verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We are to stay awake at all times. And it brings up this idea. We talked a lot about it last week. Being alert, being prepared, being ready. This time it's qualified by that phrase, at all times. That it's really not appropriate for us as God's people to say, all right, Jesus, nine to five, I'm yours. I'll stay focused on you. I'll be mindful of you. I'll try to live for you. I want to honor you nine to five, but after that, that's me time. I'm doing my own thing. He says at all times, without taking breaks, without letting our guard down, that we're mindful, that we're alert, that we're ready. And that readiness, that alertness is paired with prayer. Specifically praying for the strength to persevere. Praying that the blood of Jesus, by the grace of God, would cover us and that we would be ready to stand before Jesus on that day. That we would not incur the wrath of God which is coming to those people who reject Jesus. Praying that the righteousness of Christ would be accounted to us so that we could stand before Him. Praying that we could be faithful here and now as we anticipate that day. As that day looms and we wait for Christ to return, we're a people of prayer. So let me ask, are you prepared? Have you repented and confessed in Jesus Christ? Are you watching your heart? Are you staying alert? Are you praying? The call of the text is to let the end change your now. And finally, this day is coming and we are encouraged to follow Jesus' example. Look at verses 37 and 38. And every day He was teaching in the temple. But at night He went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to Him in the temple to hear Him. So days before Jesus is about to hang on the cross and die, what is He doing? How is He spending His time? says in every day he was teaching in the temple his last moments on this earth he's dedicating for the mission and the glory of God every day he's in the temple teaching people the truth what would you be doing on your last week of earth would you be just checking things off your personal bucket list or would you be committing every last second to bringing God glory. What if we lived the rest of our lives here on earth the way Jesus lived His last week? Consumed with God's mission. Caring for people. Sharing the Gospel with people. Teaching people. Helping people. Not for the purpose of just being good public servants, but for the purpose of advancing the kingdom and engaging God's mission and making disciples and making Christ known and bringing God glory. 
What if we lived with this constant awareness that that day is looming? That Christ is going to return and therefore, every moment here and now is about Him and it's for Him. What if you let the end change your now? So how are you going to respond to Jesus' coming? Are you going to be ready? Are you going to live appropriately? Are you going to live faithfully? Are you going to let that day inform this day? Are you going to let the end change your now? So I mentioned that first uh, job interview I had, and um, I really can't even build it up enough for you guys. This makes no sense looking back, but for that week of time, this is like the biggest thing happening in the universe to me. And uh, I just remember for that week thinking like, okay, I know the day is coming. I know this moment is coming when I'm going to be sitting across a desk from someone who's asking me questions and interviewing and probing and poking and prodding and all of that. And let me tell you, knowing that moment was coming changed the way I lived that week. I prayed a lot more desperately. Just saying, God, help me. I don't know what this is going to be like. Get me through it. Give me the words. Get me through this conversation. And then I did everything I could to prepare. I called my references. I got that haircut. I bought a new shirt. I studied up. I was ready to go. The looming presence of that day affected my life as I anticipated that day. But there's a far more important day looming the day when Jesus will return and God cares about how we anticipate it, Jesus' call is that we let that day inform this day, that we let the end change our now. So let the end change your now. Please join me in prayer. God, we love You. and Father, we thank You even for putting these difficult passages before us. And Father, it's not comfortable to hear about Your coming and judgment and some of these other things. But Father, the message of Your grace and Your love and Your forgiveness and this free gift of salvation offered through Your Son Jesus far outweighs any of that discomfort. And God, I ask that You would do a work in our hearts that just draws us to You, God. None of us can make ourselves believe. None of us can give ourselves faith. None of us can give ourselves this deep, brokenness over our own sin, but God, we want it. We pray for it. I pray we would all leave here transformed. I pray we would have our minds on You, Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that all of the teaching of the Bible, especially Your second coming, will change us, God. Use us as a powerful mission force in this city and well beyond that we might bring You glory, God. That Your name might be known. That Your name might become famous. That we might help other people recognize who you are, that you would cause them to believe through us. We love you, God, and we trust you, and we praise you, and we give you glory. It's all yours anyways. As we leave this place, Lord, claim it all for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.